0: We are one minute past the hour. As uh, people who can see me can probably tell I'm not at my usual desk spot. And that's because I'm sitting in my parents' house, which is has most of the furniture pulled out of it because we are closing a deal to sell their house. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm moving furniture today. And so I'm not at my usual desk setup. But that's a good reason for it, I think. And uh, the Bible study will carry on regardless. So uh, my apology for any th- any technical issues or if I do not sound uh, completely clear. If you can hear maybe what is a furnace fan over there. Um, but you know, we'll get through it. And uh, that's all I have to say. I don't have any uh, announcements or anything. So Robert, uh, if you want to take it away, go right. it. Well, should, I guess before I do that, we are still early in the study. But I feel like everybody has an understanding of how the format works and the question and answer. So I tell you what, if anybody's unclear about how the format of the study works, just go ahead and type in the chat and i will make sure to answer questions uh about that as we go so that if you want to participate in the question and answer later on in the study uh you are good to do that so uh thanks for bearing with me and uh, take it away robert
1: okay i'm just glad that people came back after last week we will see uh, <laughs> if people come back again next week but i think everybody knows this we're doing about three weeks in genesis And then we will go into Acts. Acts really is the goal here. Um, But I thought that a brief discussion of Genesis would be good. Before we get to the text, because this time we will actually read the Bible, I want to summarize the three points that I made last time, because I do think that that will be maybe a helpful reminder. Um, Last week, I really just attempted to make three very simple points. One is methodological it was to say that just assuming a priori that a text should be read literally is not really a safe assumption in the sense that, you know, reading reading a text that way when it's not meant to be read literally will lead you to probably the wrong conclusions. Um, So perhaps we should be open to both literal and non-literal interpretations until we really examine the, the, the text. The second point that I made last time is that texts that are meant to be read non-literally can still convey information. That is to say, they can still have a correct interpretation and an incorrect interpretation. So to say a text is non-literal is not to say that it means nothing. And the third point was that the early chapters of Genesis have been interpreted not literally all throughout church history, going all the way back to the beginnings of the church. And actually you could go back further to like the intertestamental period. So to be open to a non-literal interpretation is not a departure of church tradition. Now, notice that I actually still have not offered a shred of evidence that Genesis is meant to be read literally or or, or otherwise. All I've tried to do is maybe kind of crack open the door to the possibilities. With that in mind, I feel like what we should do now is read the text. We're actually going to read chapters one, two, and three, and you guys can kind of make your own early determination of what what you think this sounds like, and then I will present my best case, and we will take it from there. So I'm going to click play. Normally, a friend of mine records the Bible readings for us. This time, I am using an audiobook, uh, but when we get to to Acts, we will go back to our own, you know, home recordings. So, okay, I'm going to click play. Let me know if you guys don't
2: hear anything. Chapter 1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, so God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness night. There was evening, and there was morning marking the first day. God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate water from water. So God made the expanse, and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. It was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening, and there was morning, a second day. God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. It was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters He called seas. God saw that it was good. God said, Let the land produce vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and trees on the land bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. It was so. The land produced vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning a third day. God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky. To separate the day from the night, and let them be signs to indicate seasons and days and years, and let them serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. It was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day, and the lesser light to rule over the night. He made the stars also. God placed the lights in the expanse of the sky to shine on the earth to preside over the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning a fourth day. God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. God created the great sea creatures, and every living and moving thing with which the water swarmed according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind god saw that it was good god blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply and fill the water and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth there was evening and there was morning a fifth day god said let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds cattle creeping things, and wild animals, each according to its kind. It was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the cattle according to their kinds, and all the creatures that creep along the ground according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in His own image. In the image of God He created them, male and female He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and every creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the entire earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the animals of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. It was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, THE SIXTH DAY Genesis Chapter 2 The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day God finished the work that He had been doing, and He ceased on the seventh day all the work that He had been doing. God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy, because on it He ceased all the work that He had been doing in creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Now no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted an orchard, in the east, in Eden, and there He placed the man He had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. Now a river flows from Eden to water the orchard, and from there it divides into four head-streams. The name of the first is Pishon. It runs through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is pure. Pearls and lapis lazuli are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It runs through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat fruit from every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, and the living creatures of the field, but for Adam no companion who corresponded to him was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and unites with his wife, and they become a new family. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more shrewd than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Is it really true that God said, You must not eat from any tree of the orchard? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said, You must not eat from it, and you must not touch it, or else you will die. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "'Where are you?' the man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman replied, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the cattle."
1: Yeah. I am going to stop there just for the sake of time. There was only a little bit left of chapter three. Um, I'm sorry that was a long, long, long reading. I know that it was, um, but I think it's kind of important that we get a big chunk of, you know, of reading done for us to get a good sense of things. So. With that reading in mind, um, let's get to the discussion, because finally, I do want to address that million-dollar question, uh, should we read this literally or not? But before that, I kind of have a spoiler alert, which is, where am I going with this? And I I want to put this in no uncertain terms. I I think that Genesis is true. I think that it is part of scripture. I think that it is, uh, it is therefore God breathed. Um, And so I take it very seriously. Um, And, you know, so if, I don't know, if last week gave you concerns, at least that's where my mind and heart are at. But the reason that I think that this discussion is important is because I believe that if we ask the wrong questions of the text, then... Two things are going to happen. We are going to perhaps get the wrong answers to those questions, since the text was not meant to answer them. And we might miss the correct questions, so to speak. We might miss the points that the text really is trying to make. And I really, really want to get to those points that create the Christian worldview about God creating everything and God creating man in his image and man rebelling against God and and. I've, perhaps I could have jumped straight to that in this study, but I really thought that we needed to go through this preliminary step. Um, so again, spoiler alert, there is, that is where I'm headed with this. Uh, at the end of this, I'm not going to say, yeah, that's why it's all fake or something. No, not at all. Um, well, so with that in mind, let's Consider whether what we just read is what would fall under the category of myth. Now, before you stone me, um, let me define that term. Okay, I did a little bit of this last week, but the way that I am using that term is it is the way that a excuse me, that a folklorist would use it. Okay, somebody who studies myth and legend and Um, You know, that kind of literature. So nowadays, we use the word entirely different. Let's say that I told you, hey, you know that whenever you're chopping onions, if you chew on a piece of bread, your eyes won't get as teary. Well, you might respond, that's just a myth. What you mean by that in my hypothetical is that's not true. That's not what I mean. If that is what I meant by myth, then yeah, go ahead and stone me. That would be fair. I mean, um, uh, a genre of literature, okay, like historiography or biography and so forth. Now, then the question is, how do you determine whether something belongs to that style, to that genre, or not? And really, the the way to do that is to look at its characteristics, at its what we will call family characteristics but actually before i get that I, I or i get to that i kind of got out of order okay so a myth is a sacred narrative that explains how the world and man came to be in their present form so a myth generally has a purpose and it generally has to do with creation of both the world by that i mean nature and man so us Um, That, of course, involves certain things. It involves, this is a linguistic composition that is going to be either oral or written. It could be either. It is a narrative, that is to say, it has a story. A myth is not just data, it's not just information, but it has a plot, it has characters. It is a sacred narrative, so it normally involves deities. And this is implied in that definition that I just gave, but it is a traditional narrative. That is to say, it is a tradition that has been passed on to whoever wrote it down, it is not a recent or free composition. Now, myths are narratives that in the society in which they're told, they are considered to be truthful accounts of what happened in the remote past, and they are to be believed, and they can be cited as authoritative. So they are essentially the embodiment of dogma they establish the things that are kind of true from the beginning, almost a priori, right? The characters normally are gods or animals, uh, things kind of beyond us. And myths generally happen in another world. By that, we mean in the very remote past or in other realms, like the sky or under the water or whatever. And when the world was not as it is today. Now, uh, notice... I'm probably too deep in the weeds here, but that myth is different from legend or from a folktale. A legend, again, we're talking genres here, styles of writing, um, happens in the present era, in the world as it is now. A myth happens in a different place, right? Either in the very beginning or in a different realm altogether. Folktales, for example, also common in the ancient world. Those are stories that everyone knew were false. They were just cute little stories that they would tell, but nobody would take them as true, certainly not as sacred. So a myth really is a special thing. It's a narrative that a people takes to be true, to be foundational. However, here's here's kind of the crux of the issue is when, when we say a people take this to be true, in what sense do they take it to be true? And and like I said, I, I feel like this is where the fight is at. Um, and when people maybe will have pushback, and that is totally fair. Um, although myths were considered to be true, they were understood to be metaphorical. And I can give you a couple of examples that I hope will make the point. Um, and these examples come from the ancient Near East. Okay, so they're not cherry-picked. They're not from other parts of the world or other periods of time or whatever. Um Think of the Enuma Enuma Elish, uh, the Babylonian myth. In that myth, the, the earth was made out of the dead body of the dragon that was slain, Tiamat, right? But clearly Babylonians would have, they would not have expected to run into like the scales of the dragon or its spine, or, you know, a cut through its side or something like that. Like they understood the ground was the ground and it really was not the dead body of a dragon, much less would they expect to run into its eye sockets from which the rivers came out of, right. According to the myth. Um. So there's a scholar that puts it in a very kind of dramatic way, like only a lunatic would, would believe that literally And these people were not lunatics they're very they were very smart they had very advanced science for, for their time um or perhaps an even more stark example would be an egyptian myth in which the sky according to the egyptians was actually made out of the arched body of this woman that was a deity of course she was a goddess but she was a female goddess but no object no egyptian would have looked up to the sky and expected to see a naked woman much less her feet coming down or or like they were going to walk over the horizon and see her head and her hair finally you know like coming down over the horizon or something it i i earnestly believe that it is us as modern peoples that we insist like oh these people were so backwards you know they literally believe that the sky was the body of a naked woman. I mean, that is technically possible, but the much more plausible understanding of this is that those people were not dummies and they could take something as non-literal. Um, you know, so if that's that's what a myth is. That's what it does. And uh, I think this, this will fit uh, Genesis well. Now, how would we determine, like I said, whether Genesis is a myth or not. We would look at family resemblances. These are characteristics shared by most myths. Um, I have a list, but instead of reading the list, I'm just going to go through it and apply it to Genesis. Now, an important caveat here, I or point of clarification rather than caveat, the list that I'm using for the definition of myth does not come from biblical scholars, okay? So I didn't, like I'm not using a definition that was crafted very conveniently to fit Genesis because I just want to prove my point or whatever. No, the list comes for from folklorists, people who study folklore. Uh, they may not even specialize in Genesis at all. This comes from all sorts of other myths, from all sorts of cultures. So I am at least to the best of my knowledge, I am not playing with a stack deck here. I'm trying to be as fair as I can be um well let's go through the characteristics uh some of them rather quickly and on some of them I want to spend a little bit more time um like I said earlier myths are narratives that is to say they have a plot Genesis one to eleven certainly meets this requirement in two ways not only are its individual units stories like think of uh chapter one with the creation of of everything of the whole universe uh but, Actually, all 11 chapters work as a narrative as a whole. There's clearly a chronology there, right? Uh, uh, mankind is created after the earth is created, and the fall happens after creation, and the, the flood happens after the flood. I mean, after the fall is what I meant to say. The flood happens after the fall and so forth. The, the, there is actually a narrative here. Um And notice that that is important, right? That they're not giving us like just like technical data. There's a story. And so to tell a story that makes a point, perhaps you have to include these non-literal elements. Um, Myths are traditional narratives that are passed on generation to generation. This is universally agreed upon, Genesis 1 to 11. These are traditional stories that the author finally put down to paper. That author traditionally would be Moses, or, you know, that's what the church has traditionally taught. Um, and actually, yeah, I don't disagree with that, but but whether you agree or not, that's completely besides the point for our present discussion. Uh, myths are sacred for for the society that embraces them. Again, this this is completely unobjectionable. Um, clearly, uh, the, the Jewish people took this to be a sacred text. It tells them not only about kind of this this God that is unknowable, but about Yahweh, their own God, their covenantal God that makes a deal with them, so to speak, you know. Um, and we see Sabbath observance grounded on that. You already see the beginnings of animal sacrifice. Um, and particularly, you see God's plan that then Abraham is trying to go back to, right? You have God's original plan, which is good. There's a fall in the call of Abraham, which eventually culminates with Jesus in the New Testament. It's all about returning to that plan. Um, myths are object of belief by members of the society. Again, this is unobjectionable. We see this, for example, in Exodus, when the Sabbath is explained. And what is the reason for the Sabbath? The Lord created the world in six days and rested in the seventh. And so he consecrated it. So they recite early chapters of Genesis as authoritative to prove their point. Um, Myths are set in a primeval age or another realm. Again, I, I think this is, well, I should not say this one is unobjectionable. This one, somebody could argue if, if they really have the opposite perspective, but the Notice that the story happens in the beginning when things were not like they are today in a realm that no person could have observed, right? Because there's nothing in the beginning. There's not a world. There's not anything. In fact, the story even describes the origin of languages. So it is certainly not in the current age. It is in the primordial age, which is different altogether. Um. Myths are stories in which deities are important characters. This element is actually controversial, but not for the reasons that you might think. Uh, some folk- folklorists, sorry, I struggle with that word. Some folklorists would say Genesis is not a myth in this regard, but because they they think that a myth must require many gods, and the fact that this is a monoth- monotheistic, Theistic story, for, forgive me. Uh, only one god. They would say, "Well, that immediately rules it out of myth." That seems to be an error in category. Um, they seem to confound the definition of myth as a genre, as opposed to, uh, you know, myth as a sort of substantive thing that involves necessarily many gods. So I don't think that that really knocks Genesis out of the running. Um, the next thing is, or the next family resemblance is really, really important. It's this idea that myths seek to anchor present realities, such as the world, mankind, natural phenomena, and all that in a primordial time. Well, this is kind of the heart of myth, right? This is what myth really does. It, it grounds present realities in a primordial time. And of course, we see this in Genesis, right? We see not only actually the founding of Israel as a nation, uh, we see the founding of humankind. It is the Genesis myth is is so important to the Bible because it is universal. It's not about a people. Um, It is about the creation of all peoples of, you know, the first man and woman. It is about the creation of the whole world, not about one particular country. Um, And... There are several natural phenomena that are expressly grounded, right, in those early chapters. I want to give more examples about this, but that's going to get to kind of a different discussion that I want to have in more detail. So for now, kind of put a pin on that, and we will return to it. Um, Myths generally are associated with rituals. Um, I will say Genesis kind of fails this requirement. You could say that it relates to... To, that it relates to the ritual of Sabbath of serpents or animal sacrifice. Sure. Um, perhaps you could say that. Um, but at any rate, this particular family resemblance is considered much less important by folklorists nowadays. This is based in an older understanding of myth that scholars had that I don't want to go into, but now it's considered to be antiquated and perhaps a bit bigoted. But then again, everything is bigoted nowadays. Um, and um myths do generally express correspondences between nature and gods of course we don't see that in genesis because in genesis there's only one god Um, so that is that is not surprising now we get to the main kind of characteristic that i think really leads us to to the conclusion that maybe genesis is in the genre of myth. And on this one, I can slow down a little bit. Um, It is the idea that myths, they exhibit fantastic elements and are not troubled by logical contradictions. Now, of course, the whole reason why this can be the case, why this is the case in all of ancient Near Eastern, if not really all of myths, period, is that these stories are trying to make certain points, right? They're not concerned with, kind of plot holes because it's not it's about the point in the story it's not necessarily about uh you know having the super tidy narrative um and we got to ask this does genesis have these things? before i answer that question i want to be very careful by what i mean by fantastical elements or fantastic elements rather because if i don't I will be misunderstood and and probably be accused of being anti-miracle. So let me say from the outset, I believe in miracles 1000%. Okay. I believe in all sorts of miracles that happen in the old Testament, and the new Testament. I am not bothered by miracles intellectually, none of that. And by fantastic elements, I do not mean miracles. I mean, things that are so unbelievable because they're kind of silly that both the author and the audience, they immediately understand it to be non-literal. Let me give you an example. In outside of Genesis, let's say that I came to you and I said, hey, I was diagnosed with cancer, but then my church prayed for me. I went for a second testing and actually I got a completely healthy diagnosis. Is that a fantastic element? No, that is clearly the narration of a miracle. Now, you might not believe it, right? You might believe, oh, the first test was probably erroneous or whatever. That's fine. But again, this is not about whether you believe it or not. It's what is the intention of the narrative? Clearly, in my example, I intend to narrate a miracle, whether it actually happened or not. Let's say, however, this another kind of silly example. Let's say that your wife is about to have a baby, and but you haven't... or let's say your wife is pregnant and you haven't told anybody that she's pregnant. And I happen to find out. And I make a comment and I say, Hey, so I, you know, congratulations, your wife is pregnant. And let's say you were surprised and you were like, I, we haven't told anybody, how did you find out? And let's say my response was a little birdie told me, well, notice that by that expression is so fantastical. Obviously a bird did not tell me that. And <laughs> so it's nobody's lying in this interaction. Clearly I am using a figure of speech and clearly I mean you to understand it as a figure of speech. There's an understanding between the speaker and the audience. That is what I mean by fantastic element. And the question is then, do we have any of these things or logical contradictions in the text? Because again, this would be a huge, huge indication that perhaps what we have is a myth. Well. Let me give you some, some examples. And here's probably where I will make people mad. Believe me, I am not trying to, I want to get to the lessons of Genesis. So just bear with me for one more session. Um number one, we have anthropo <laughs> anthropomorphisms. Anthropomorphisms, forgive me. Um, where God is portrayed as a essentially as a regular guy. Um, and and this is this is rather jarring when you're reading the text because in at the beginning of genesis one right in the beginning god creates all things so he's this transcendent being and then we get to genesis chapter two and god is essentially you know like think of when god creates eve he's like performing surgery on adam to to make this woman it is completely different from how god is portrayed in genesis one where he's so transcendent um you now you may say no 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 that that totally checks out okay that's fair what about when god is strolling down the garden calling to adam and saying adam where are you we're talking about a transcendent all knowing all powerful god now you could say god was just acting again it's true it's true it could, that could be but i think the question will be what is more plausible right and of course i leave that up to you um you can make up your mind there What about narrative inconsistencies? Um, I could point out several, but I'm just focusing on one. Uh, A a rather clear one, in my opinion, is the creation of vegetation. In Genesis 1, vegetation is created in day 3. And if you look at the blog, I have citations and all that, if if you want to follow along. And man, of course, is created on day 6. But when you get to Genesis 2... Notice what we read. Now no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils. So in, in the Genesis 2 account, man is created before vegetation. Um, we're in Genesis one and it's created after. Now, if we really squint our eyes, can we read these two narratives in unison? Sure, you can. And again, if you want to do that, that is totally fair. I'm not even going to, whatever. that That is 100% fine. But I think we have, I think it is reasonable to say that if the author was really worried about consistency, he would have smoothed this out himself when this at least apparent inconsistency is only like five paragraphs apart not even um and then um and i, I see the clock ticking i'll be done here pretty quick what about fantastic elements and here i i actually do want to to point this out because i think it's important think about the snake the, i think the snake is is the prime example of a fantastic element Uh, generally we think of the snake as, as being Satan, which I don't even, I, I, I think that that's right in the sense that I think the snake represents Satan. Um, I'm fully with you there. That's totally fair, but let's forget what we are imposing on the text. And let's actually read what the text says, what it actually says, what does it actually say? Quote, now the serpent was shrewder than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Notice there's no the snake was shrewder than the other animals. That's how the text presents it. And then the snake talks, and nobody's surprised that the snake is talking, which, you know, should be surprising if if the animals can't talk. Um but no, this is just, this sounds a lot like a fable, right? Like they were talking animals and the snake just happened to be the most cunning of all the talking animals. And the snake tricks Eve. Now, again, don't please don't hear what, what I'm not saying. Do I believe that the, the snake represents the devil? 100%. But that's not how the story uh, presents it. The story does not present it literally, uh, as in. The devil turned into a snake and tricked Eve and all this stuff. No, just says, look, the most cunning of the talking animals. um and just in case you're like Robert, nobody would ever think of Genesis two was talking about talking animals. Well, actually, um one of a, a very early Jewish writing from the intertestamental period does exactly that. This would be in the book of Jubilee. You can look at chapter three. And the way those um, those writers interpreted Genesis two, they said, "Well, the animals must have lost the ability to speak after the fall, because they clearly Genesis two implied talking animals." Okay. So what I'm getting at is um, that that probably is an is an element in the story that the author always meant for people to take non literally. Um, the other example we could be we could give would be about the trees. Think of the tree of life. Notice that these trees are kind of magical in the sense that God doesn't do a miracle. The trees have this property to them. Like if you eat the fruit of the tree of life, it's not God that's giving you life. It's just the tree that's doing it. Again, in this story, I do believe that it symbolizes something else, of course, but in this story, and in fact, the trees are so magical that they could thwart God's plan right when you when you read in genesis 3 now that the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil he must not be allowed to stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever so if we take this story literally if i could somehow just get a hold of that fruit boom i would live forever whether god wants it or not it again it's probably not to be taken literally okay so, and I'm going to bring it here to my conclusion. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm a little bit late on time. Um, so, what do I want to go back to? That when I say myth, I am not saying that the story is not true. In fact, I'm not even saying that it is not historical. I believe that Genesis is historical. I just don't think that it is historiography. Meaning, it presents historical truths, truths about the world that I believe 100%. It just teaches those truths in a non-literal way. That is the only point that I'm trying to make. So the next step, and if you've made it through sessions one and two, I just hope that you will come back next week. Maybe I can redeem myself. Because what I wanna discuss is what are these truths that the text is really trying to convey? And I'm gonna give you just a brief preview and we'll open it up to questions. Um, it tells us about the origin of the world right? It tells us that God creates all things. So before God, there is nothing. And outside of God, there is nothing. Or by outside of God, that sounded very like pantheistic. By that, I mean, nothing has been made that has not been made by God. Um, It tells us about the origin of humanity. And here, I would love to compare other ancient Near Eastern myths, where where humankind is made to serve the gods as little slaves, because the gods are tired of feeding themselves or Making water trenches, and I mean that literally uh, and so they create humans to just be their little you know servants and and whatever in Genesis, we have an entirely different understanding of the world where humankind is made in the image of God and is meant to enjoy communion with God. And I really want to explore that um and then some of the natural phenomena, right uh, notice that the world is not full of spirits. The world is non-spiritual. That is why we can have science. Um, notice that work becomes hard for man because of the fall. Those are the things that I want to explore. And I just thought we had to go through this exercise to get there with that, Matt, I don't know if you have any questions or if you want to open it up
0: to questions. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we'll start the discussion portion of the, uh, of the study here and that means if you have a question or a point you'd like to raise just write the word question in the chat and i will bring you guys in first come first serve i have a couple on my mind one i think is probably a longer answer than the other so i will save that in case uh, we uh, have extra time because um, I, i'll I, i'd like to dig in a little bit more into some of the intended interpretation of the text but one thing just about the story that i find hard to understand is why seeking or the acquisition of knowledge of good and evil is bad it seems i mean if you could just explain what that is intended to mean because from my perspective what am i doing here but for seeking knowledge of good and evil and is what's the difference between what i'm doing right now and i suppose what adam and eve we're, we're doing in the garden uh yeah
1: i would say and so this is something that i really want to explore more next week when we get okay. to the the lessons but let me give you kind of a preview and then i will address it more fully next time that what that means is not what we mean when we say it now right like now it's like i i also want that knowledge i want to know what is right because i want to do what is right but in that sense it is it is I think you can take it in two ways, but perhaps mostly, um i would I would like to show that they were becoming their own rulers. So what that really means is that Adam and Eve would themselves determine what is good and what is evil. They would okay. be able to impose their own rule on the on the world, you know, And that's why God says now they're like one of us now, they are rulers who are trying to determine themselves what is what is right and wrong. Okay. And because of that departure from God, now they cannot commune with God because they no longer submit to him.
0: So it's not it's not necessarily seeking to understand God, it's seeking to usurp him, essentially. Exactly. That is exactly okay. right. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Uh we do have a few people looking to chime in. Gilgamesh, go ahead if you're ready.
3: Yeah, um I know this part is not in like the Christian, uh, you know, Old Testament, but it is in the Jewish, is that before Eve, there was a woman that was created the same way God created the same way he created Adam called Lilith. But because she refused to submit to Adam and there's a whole, you know, I was, part where Lucifer basically tormented her and turned her in the first demon That um, basically she would not submit to Adam because God said, you know, that's why he eventually created Eve from Adam was that he knew that was a mistake. Um, Like I said, it's not in our Old Testament, but it is in the Jewish Old Testament. That's why like children, like especially boys, you know, Jews would have them grow their hair, their son's hair out, make them dress as a girl because they were afraid Lilith would come for their son's. Because she had cursed um, their their children to suffer because she because of what happened to her, and um, this was something uh, Jew told me that yeah they didn't put in the the Christian Old Te- Testament, but that's in their testament because theirs is much longer. You know what the J- Jews have as far as the Old Testament it's much longer than ours, and I, I was like, oh okay, so. He creates Lilith, and then he realizes she's not going to listen to him. So he makes the decision to create Eve, so that she does listen. You know, she's there to serve Adam. And um, yeah, they, like you said, Robert, about them eating from the tree of knowledge, they were in a, in a way rebel. If they did, they were rebelling against God. Like we're going to usurp you, and that's why he kicks them out of paradise because he felt that they were trying to take over and. This is, did you know vampires were actually in the Bible? Because it goes with Cain. The whole thing, when Cain killed his son, his brother, God sort of punished him and kind of made him like the first vampire. Um, not mean like with the fangs and everything, but the whole living for, you know, not being able to die or anything, cursing him with a pretty much eternal damn life. And so, yeah. Um,
0: All right. Uh, thanks for the thoughts, Robert. Did you have oh, yeah. any uh- response to the vampire theme.
1: Yeah. So I want to make one clarification. Um and thank you, Gilgamesh, for your comment. The uh the Jewish old, well, the Jewish scripture is identical to the Christian Old Testament. So that we have the same we we have the same text. We do count the books differently. So if you compare the number of books, it will it will change, but just because we compile the information differently. However, uh, Gilgamesh is referring to rabbinic literature, so it's not part of their oh. scripture per se, but it is part of rabbinic literature. Okay. Now, this rabbinic literature comes centuries and centuries after the scripture. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like, what Gilgamesh is saying is, it's true in the sense that, yes, there's rabbinic literature talking about that, but it's centuries after their scripture. Oh,
3: okay.
1: Yeah, so just that okay. clarification on that point. okay. All right, so- well, thank thank
0: you. you Gilgamesh. Yep. Have a great night.
4: You too. Thanks. Uh,
0: Rev Rogers. You're good to go. If you're ready.
4: Um, I was just going to chime in about another analogy for kind of understanding myth and the way I've, I've tried to understand it. Uh, if you're familiar with Johnny Cash's song, Folsom prison blues, um, it led to the, an understanding that Johnny Cash had gone to prison That he was a prisoner and was in jail. Well, Johnny Cash never went to prison, but he sang this song, Folsom Prison Blues, in such a narrative way that people began to think, well, is this, is he doing biography, autobiography here, or is he um, just making up a story? Well, in some ways, um, Folsom Prison Blues is not true. But in other ways, it's absolutely true about Johnny Cash's life in the sense that I think he was expressing his own inner prison experience, his own inner psychological imprisonment. And thus, you get this um, song that conveys a narrative history about sh- uh, you know shooting a man just to watch him die and all of the terribleness of that. And you say, well, is that true of Johnny Cash? Well, no, it's not true of Johnny Cash. But in some ways, yes, indeed, it's true of Johnny Cash, because it conveys a reality of experience internally, although it is expressed in a historical narrative of sorts. Now, I'm not I'm saying Genesis does have some historicity to it, especially because of the genealogical connectedness uh, that is made with the um, early chapters of Genesis 1 through 11, you get genealogies and all. But I think the expression of these so-called fantastical um, elements, like the talking serpent, you may say well it's not literally a talking serpent well I, I but i think the the ancient israelite would read it and think of it in terms i do believe that there are spiritual beings that tempt us away from our relationship with god that tempt us away from our covenant and thus the talking serpent the nachash um is something that is a reality in Israelite life as they are in uh, Canaan, that they will encounter spiritual powers and advocates of spiritual powers. And thus this narrative, this quote myth um, of Genesis 3, is a, a warning that there is temptation, there is deception in Canaan and the bringing it back to some primeval story in which there is whether it's a talking serpent or not the main point Carl uh, Bart once said um people are always asking did the did the snake talk and he always made the point what did the snake say that's the point of the narrative what did the snake say and as you read it you want to read it in a sense of is this information about talking snakes or is this information primarily about where are temptations in our experience because temptations uh-huh. have been there all the way back in human history I don't have a problem with it being I'll, I'll probably
0: a, have to I'll probably have to cut you there just cuz I want to make sure that we have time for the rest oh, of sure. our oh, the yeah, rest of I, our discussion I, I, oh, but I, yeah, thanks for thank you talk. for thank you for the thoughts and Robert did you have a response to that
1: uh, I agree fully, Reverend. I'm gonna have to start going to your church, but okay, <laughs> we can move on to the next.
0: I saw a comment in the uh, in the chat too that uh, yeah, people were unaware that uh, that Johnny Cash had not in fact gone to prison. So uh, yeah, yeah, a little history lesson too. Yeah, uh, thank, point thank, well taken. Thank you for the thoughts, Rev Rogers. Uh, Chris, you're good to go if you're ready.
5: Uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to ask a question. So. Uh, in chapter three, when, you know, after this this bad stuff goes down and God is kind of handing out judgments, I, I guess you'd say. You know, it's interesting to me that he says to the, the serpent, that on your belly you shall go. And uh, which implies to me he was not on his belly at that point. Just curious if you ever thought about that and what you thought about it.
1: Oh, that's a, that's a tricky question. So just for the sake of time, I will give you a very brief answer, but I think, um, as it relates to our discussion, I think it further goes to show that in this story, it's just a snake because who's taking the the punishment snakes, not the devil. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think clearly in the story, that is the implication that the the snake was, was different in the story before this event and after this event, um, And again, if we if we read this overly literalistically, then we would be committed to a certain kind of evolution of the snake where it had legs before and not after. But I think if we understand this um, to be symbolic, then we can absolutely understand that as some interaction that happened with this deceiver. Right. And something was done to this deceiver. And. I want to just leave it there because next time I want to explore some of these things more, maybe, I don't know that I was thinking exactly of that, but does that, I don't know, does that make sense at all? Or, or do you have a comment about that?
5: Uh, no, I think it, I think it depends on how you, how you approach it. So, you know, we're, you've, you've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, how to, how to the, I guess the, the hermeneutic of how you would approach this, whether you take it literally or or not so and and i'll be frank i'm taking it i'm taking it pretty much literally uh and i think uh yeah i think it's interesting to to ponder whatever whatever, and and the translation i think it depends on your translation but mine says serpent and so i think i think we've always you know through art we've been prejudiced through art and such you know like for instance a lot of people they think of i think if you asked a lot of people on the street what did what did the serpent talk Eve into, into eating or whatever? You, but it, most people picture like an apple, you know, because and that's that's in our collective consciousness through, because of art and things. And I think the same thing with the the serpent. But what whatever, you know, either way, whatever the serpent, uh, no matter how you approach this story, the serpent was not on its belly to begin with because uh, that was its punishment.
1: I mean, in the in the story, that is undoubted. I I completely agree. And by the way, if you know, for you and other people who've put up with me for the last two weeks that do take the story completely literally, I can almost promise, I won't promise, but I can almost promise that next week will be enjoyable for all of us, regardless of how you take the story. Because I think that we all pretty much draw the same lessons out of it. So if you've you know if you've been kind of mad at me for two weeks i'm not saying that it's your your case chris but if somebody has just stick around one more week and i I think that there really is a payoff to this
0: thank you chris thank you have a good night uh garrick doesn't have a mic but he has a quick question uh is there a significance between what god sees is good versus what god says or declares is good
1: oh my goodness i uh i don't know what he really means by that question to be to be honest i don't know if he's thinking about new testament the way that the righteousness of christ is imputed to us i think that's probably where his question his question is coming from to where god can declare someone to be like judicially good because christ has atoned for your sins but God is not like deluding himself. He does see that you have committed sin in your life. And so in that regard, there could be a difference. But the difference is not free. It's, it's because somebody really did pay for your sin. Um, so I hope that is answering yeah. his, his question.
0: Well, I guess uh, you know, as someone with absolutely no uh, scriptural expertise to guess about it, I do notice just kind of looking through the text here, like there are things that God just sees as good, like the light in the first, uh, in, in the second paragraph here of the scripture that, that we're reading. And then there are other items where he just outright, or he called the land or he, he named the land or declared the land and saw that it was good. And then there are other items that uh. he seems to assign the label good to, I guess, to me, I would read that to Mean that there were some things that were kind of inherently good before God even observed that they were good, and other things where He saw it, maybe assessed it or contemplated it and said, "Yeah, that's good. I, he- I hereby give it the title."
1: Uh I see now. Okay, thank you so much. I did not understand where the question was coming from. Now, I I would argue that that's just uh, the way the text is written. Like it's not it's not significant in the sense that. To say that that God said it was good or God saw that it was good, it, it I would argue it means the exact same thing, um, you know, because it really makes no sense for an all-knowing God to see something and then realize like, oh, yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> and, and it seems like the whole creation story is very intentional, like there's no, you know, kind of luck to it where God just saw something that was good. So I, I believe that the two things just mean the same thing. Uh, I don't believe that the author is trying to draw a distinction, and I've never heard of a commentator that I would say otherwise that would say that there is a distinction. That's why that question just got me okay copy yeah, Garrick guard.
0: responded saying that's that's essentially what he was getting at, so okay, cool, uh, okay, thank you, Garrick. and we have just one more request to speak. I know we're at the, a little bit past the top of the hour, but that's fine with me if you can take just a couple minutes. Is that all right, Robert?
1: Yeah, absolutely okay
0: uh lag I think is the last request to speak here. Go for it if you're ready.
6: Uh, yeah, I just had a quick comment. If my uh, excited dog will give me a chance to speak without sure, barking sure. over me. Um, and it is in regard what? to... Yeah, there she is. It is in regard to the um, the distinction of stories between Genesis 1 and 2. I used to uh, be very opposed to that. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I took it more literally. And I think there are ways to unify them. But... I think that's less significant, and my quick comment related to them is there is, I think, something in the text, even in the original Hebrew, that is sort of a marker to lead to that. If I remember correctly, the word used for God in the whole first chapter is Elohim, which is literally it literally translates to gods. Whereas in the uh, second chapter, it switches over to using. Uh, what we now translate to Yahweh or Jehovah, the divine name, which is the the special name, the only one that applies to only God and nothing else. If I remember correctly, that starts in Genesis 2, which I think is a interesting note to go along with uh, different ways of, and that's just the different ways of looking at this first chapter. So, um, Yeah,
1: okay. I mean, yeah, ahead, uh, I, I believe... On. He is correct. That I'd have to look if that I, I believe that the break does happen in chapter two. Um, I haven't thought about that in a in a minute, and so, but I, that does sound correct. And one important thing on Elohim again, what he said is also a hundred percent correct. Elohim is a plural world word. It would it would translate to gods, but that word can be used in singular form. It's just like the word sheep in English. If there's lots of sheep, if there's one sheep, you, you use the plural word. So I just say that because sometimes people will make a big deal out of this and they'll be like, Hey, in Genesis one, the world is, I mean, the the word for God is plural. So it's talking about many gods in, and again, this is not aimed at lag, lag did not say this at all, but people who do say that just don't understand languages. Uh, Sometimes there are words that they are identical in the plural form and in the singular. So, But the narrative clearly is talking about one God. But yes, uh, Lag, uh, if I remember correctly, he's completely correct on on what he said there.
6: Uh, If I have a note for Elohim, uh, I know there is a singular version of the word. I've often heard that the use of the term Elohim as an argument for the Christian trinity uh, because the distinction because l like the ending of a lot of names such as nathaniel uh and gabriel and michael is that l for for god so but yeah just yeah i I like language stuff i don't want to take too much time so sure
0: Sure. but that was the
1: thoughts yeah yeah that was a good comment um so
0: okay well that is uh we got through all the requests to speak so thank you for your contributions tonight guys and of course thank you to robert for uh his continued effort in putting together the study uh robert did you have anything else you want to add before we call it a night
1: i would just say if again if you if you listen to the first two weeks come back the third week and then we're going to go into acts so it's going to be much less controversial but what I'm building up towards is that third week. So just come back one more week, give me one more chance, and then you can stone me. That will be all right.
0: <laughs> Far too apologetic. I appreciate all your effort in in uh, guiding us through this. And I look forward to the rest of the study. And of course, uh, I thank everybody who showed up tonight. If um If you missed any part of the study or you want to go back and listen to it, I'll remind everyone the audio is available on demand. Uh, You can find that on the Bible study page of my website. And if there's anything else Bible study related that you're looking for, you want to message either Robert or myself, or you want to look at Robert's written blog, or just catch up on past uh, episodes of the study, uh, Bible study page of the website is where you find all of that. It's linked on my homepage. Uh, Other than that, have a great night, guys. We will catch you back here Friday night, next Friday, at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time and every Friday going forward. So thanks for joining and have a great night.